0: Good evening, everybody. As folks are populating into this webinar, I'm John Allen Gay. I'm the Executive Director of the John Quincy Adams Society. It's great to be here with you tonight. Uh, we've got a really great event on uh, the, some of the unusual, very surprising findings uh, around the connections between economic aid and uh, security issues, repression, et cetera. Before we get into that, I've got some really quick housekeeping items here. Uh, Let me drop in the chat some links to our upcoming events. So we've got an event uh, next Tuesday that's co-sponsored with the Quincy Institute on Gen Z and foreign policy. I'll be moderating that uh, and sort of participating. But we've got some people who are actually in Gen Z uh, that are going to be doing most of the talking. Uh, We've got uh, that Wednesday, this time, 7 p.m., a uh, a Q&A with uh, Lindsay O'Rourke of Boston College. Uh, talking about regime change. She's done a lot of work on that subject. Uh, Got a great book on covert uh, regime change attempts during the Cold War. Uh, We'll be doing that with our Boston College chapter. And then on the 7th, we are going to be talking progressive foreign policy after Trump with Kate Kaiser of Win Without War. Some of you may have seen her do some of our events before, but she's really great. So I think all these are going to be excellent events. Feel free to sign up for them but you didn't come to hear me talk. Let me introduce my co-host from our Johns Hopkins chapter, Gabriella Baghdadi to get things rolling.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Gabriella. I'm a senior at Johns Hopkins University and I'm the president of the um, John Quincy Adams Society chapter at Hopkins. Um, So we run events um, based on realist foreign policy um, and try to get, you know, the new generation of foreign policy officials um, engaged in discussions of foreign policy issues. Um, and I'm now going to introduce our speaker for tonight. Um, joining us is Jessica Trisco Darden. She is an assistant professor of political science at the Virginia Commonwealth University and the author of three books, including Aiding and Abetting, U.S. Foreign Assistance and State Violence, Insurgent Women, Female Combatants in Civil Wars, and Women as War Criminals Gender, Agency, and Justice. She holds a PhD in political science from McGill University. And I will now pass the floor on to Jessica.
0: You're muted, sorry.
2: Of course, Uh, thank you all so much for having me here. As that introduction suggested, I have kind of eclectic research portfolio. Some of my work deals with gender and gendered assumptions in war and post-war violence. Um, But today I'm really gonna be focusing on my body of research, which looks at how international development policies and in particular US foreign assistance influences level of political violence and conflict seen abroad. So I'm gonna share this little presentation with you all. it draws on my uh, book Aiding and Abetting, uh, which is actually available now in audiobook and it's on Audible. Uh, and so, for those of you who don't perhaps have the time to read it, but are uh, have more flexibility in terms of listening to it during your panic jogs, uh, I offer that option up to you. Uh, this came out with Stanford University Press last year. And I think it's really timely that we're talking about it today, in part because yesterday was the Senate confirmation hearing for the new uh, head of USAID, Samantha Power. And so it's a very timely conversation to be having about what direction should U.S. foreign aid policy take uh, in this new administration and generally moving forward. But those discussions aren't new. So... As early as the 1960s, there was a widespread acceptance that US foreign aid was simply what America did. By benefit of its wealth and its status in the world, the US was in a position and had a moral responsibility to give aid to other nations. So Hans Morgenthau argued in 1962 that it was beyond the point to question whether the US should have a policy of foreign aid. Instead, he asked, what kind of foreign policy we ought to have? This is a central question and one that has not been taken up by many scholars, but it forms kind of the heart of my research agenda. If we're going to have a US foreign aid policy, whose interests should it serve and how should those interests be achieved? The work that I did in aiding and abetting kind of flips this question on its head by looking at the consequences of our aid policy abroad as a starting point. I developed what I call the coercive effect of foreign aid as a theory, and it argues that foreign assistance can undermine individual rights and freedoms irrespective of the intended purposes of aid. So we might intend to do lots of good in the world with our US foreign aid policy. But ultimately, once those dollars are transferred, once those programs uh, get in motion, we can't necessarily control the consequences of those actions. I argue that it's domestic conditions in aid recipient countries not the intentions of aid donors that ultimately shape whether foreign assistance can be used coercively. These are things like a country's regime type and political institutions. Is it a democratic country? Do governments rule through authoritarian measures? Do they rely on the military? State strength and the capacity for violence. Does the state have reach into all of its territories? Can it effectively deliver public services? Is the military used for internal policing functions and are the police uh, intended to restore law and order rather than serve as, as an extension or an arm of the government? And lastly, what is the country's history of armed conflict? We know that a country that has experienced civil war is more likely to experience civil war in the future. And how do our patterns of aid distribution affect that likelihood? I argue that the political effects of foreign aid um, are actually quite easy to understand. Regardless of whether a donor gives a country economic aid or military aid, the vast majority of that foreign aid gets absorbed into a country's government budget. So every year in the United States, we have to pass budget bills where we decide what we're going to spend our resources on. Other countries are no different. I argue that in the context of this kind of government budgetary process, it in effect doesn't matter whether a country received economic aid or military aid from a donor like the United States because it can spend that aid as it sees fit within the context of its overall resources. What is crucial then for determining the political effects of foreign assistance is whether as aid recipient state devotes those resources to providing services, healthcare, education, infrastructure, or whether it decides to redirect aid towards its coercive capacity, supporting the military and other violent government aligned arms of the state. When we see states devote, foreign assistance and extra resources to service capacity, right? We see them providing services and we see them uh, engaging and essentially buying support uh, from their citizens, right? If you're receiving education, if you're well-fed, if you have access to healthcare, you're not going to pose a political risk to your government. However, it's when states rely very heavily on their coercive capacity, when they need force to remain in power and they utilize foreign assistance toward that end, that we get this coercive effect of foreign aid, where instead of actually helping citizens in aid recipient countries, foreign assistance is contributing to the dynamics of repression and political violence abroad. In building this argument and testing it, I draw on a wide variety of data sources that I'm happy to discuss more. Uh, these include official government sources, so uh, reports from the U.S. Agency for International Development, uh, the State Department's archives, CIA archives, congressional reports, all of these official publicly available government sources. I also draw on local sources in the countries uh, that I investigate that include NGO human rights reports, truth and reconciliation commissions, victims' testimonies, and primary real-time news reporting. I also draw on a range of quantitative data, both from USAID, the World Bank, uh, and various quantitative human rights indices to try and measure the direct impact of U.S. foreign assistance on those human rights abuses that I'm very much interested in. So what does this look like? Well, here's an example of a declassified source. It's a cable from the U.S. Embassy in Jakarta, Indonesia uh, to Washington, D.C., to the Secretary of State. And it's highlighting how in September, 1983, Indonesian forces engaged in reprisal killings throughout East Timor. So this is one piece of evidence uh, that I integrate in my research. But I also do this broad statistical analysis where essentially I'm looking at 40 years of data on 142 middle and low-income countries, countries that can be uh, recipients of U.S. foreign assistance, and I'm looking at both military aid and economic aid to those countries. In particular, I'm interested in how that foreign assistant uh, assistance affects certain human rights behaviors. So whether the state engages in mass killings, uh, whether the state engages in kind of a lower level political violence, including repression and torture. Uh, and I use a statistical method of logistic regressions, which I'm gonna show here a graphical representation of uh, to give you a sense of my findings. So these are uh, m- graphed uh, odds ratios, essentially what you need to know here is that an odds ratio greater than one uh, indicates that that variable is associated with increasing levels of the outcome variable. So in my case, as you can see represented here, US military aid was actually associated with the decreased level of violence. So countries that received high levels of U.S. military assistance were less likely to engage in mass killings, were less likely to engage in lower level uh, state led killings, were less likely uh, to engage in repression and in torture. On the other hand, U.S. economic assistance, which is the overwhelming majority of assistance to most developing countries, right? Those countries that received extremely high levels of economic aid were likely uh, to engage in mass killings, state killings and repression. What's interesting um, analytically here is that both forms of foreign assistance decrease the likelihood of torture, which suggests that we need to think about torture very differently than we think about these other forms of state violence. And I'm happy to engage uh, on that issue with you more during the question and answer period. What my statistical findings suggest is that economic aid is increased across time uh, with increased likelihood of state led killings and government repression. Right. So contrary to what we think that economic aid is about health care and education and um, programs that allow kind of community building and peace building. My results suggest that after 40 years of intensive U.S. development efforts, that aid has actually led to an increase in political violence abroad. Uh, On the other hand, U.S. military assistance, which many critics suggest actually is a vehicle for human rights abuses, has the opposite effect. U.S. military assistance actually improves human rights uh, behaviors abroad. It's associated with decreased levels of state killing and torture. What's really important is that both of these findings hold true, even when controlling for other things that are associated with human rights abuses. Right, so dictatorships are more likely to feature human rights abuses. However, even when I take that into account, I still have these same robust uh, statistical findings. So why might that be, I argue that there are several channels that we can understand uh, the impact of the coercive effect of foreign aid. And one of those channels is an income effect. Essentially as aid recipient governments, take on more resources provided by these external actors, they simply have more money to spend, right? It's like getting a really great check from your great aunt that you never talked to. She says, oh, you know, I would really like you to spend this on, on your textbooks, but she has no way of knowing whether you spent it on textbooks or beer or binge watching something right? You can spend that resource freely. And we have evidence um, from other areas that foreign aid does in fact do this. And so a study by the University of Washington's Institute of Health Metrics found that for every dollar that sub-Saharan African countries received in healthcare funding, they reduced their own spending by between 50 cents to a and 14 cents. So what this suggests is that when countries know that they have other resources coming in, they redirect their own funds to other areas of higher priority. At the same time, there's also evidence um, from prior studies that economic assistance can substitute for military assistance. So that instead of directly providing high levels of military assistance, economic assistance is instead directed towards military ends. And that might explain some of this uh, differential effect between official U.S. military assistance and economic assistance that I find. So what does this look like in practice? Well, in Indonesia, Uh, We had a post-independence government under Sukarno that was uh, non-aligned, but in the 1960s became kind of closer to the Soviet Union and raised concerns in Washington about possible communist ties. Uh, In 1967, we see a military coup that ousts Sukarno and installs Major General Suharto into power and US support for Indonesia uh, skyrockets following that coup. The graph here shows that the vast majority of U.S. foreign assistance provided to Indonesia during the uh, 30-year Suharto dictatorship was in the form of food assistance, right? So we focused on the provision of economic assistance as general budgetary support. Again, the idea was that both food aid uh, and other grants and loans were supporting the overall budget of Indonesia. And food aid was an important tool in this effort because Indonesia took that food aid and sold it to its own military at highly subsidized rates, right? So uh, for instance, the market price for rice uh, in Jakarta was 60 rupiah per liter. but the Indonesian government was able to sell that rice to itself for below market rates, right? Essentially generating savings and monetizing that foreign aid. But it didn't just sell food aid to itself. Indonesia also sold food aid on the world market. So essentially resources were being sent from the United States to Indonesia and Indonesia was selling them internationally uh, for much needed foreign exchange right? So we can understand a variety of ways in which economic assistance from the United States simply becomes another budgetary resource uh, for the recipient country. Uh, I also have wonderful evidence of the awareness that officials had in Washington of this dynamic. So this is a memo, action memo from the White House from May 1975, from Henry Kissinger to President Ford, actually discussing this dynamic in Indonesia during the period of the Suharto dictatorship. And they were really sensitive to the fact that um, OPEC was kind of rising as a powerhouse, Globally, it, it was controlling oil prices. Indonesia was going to be, at, be getting beginning a lot of oil revenue in the future. Um, and that Congress was likely to take action to restrict US foreign assistance to Indonesia, right? In that context, Kissinger argued that Um, because Congress was likely to restrict military aid to Indonesia in the future, that the Ford administration needed to actually increase its economic aid to the country and rely on economic aid ties because its ability to provide military assistance would be constrained, right? What one can infer from this memo is that this was very much the substitution effect um, between economic and military assistance. So when military assistance couldn't be provided because of domestic US pressures, the administration turned to other tools, including economic assistance, knowing that ultimately it would benefit Indonesia militarily as well. But this didn't just happen in Indonesia. Right? It was going on all over the world. And so, uh, for instance, we see that US bilateral aid to El Salvador um, skyrockets during the Salvador uh, Salvadoran Civil War. So we see the formation of a uh, leftist-oriented uh, insurgent group in El Salvador. And immediately, we see economic aid to the country skyrocket. We also see the provision of military aid represented there uh, in the gray. Um, and once we have a kind of peace process in El Salvador and the FMLN sign a peace treaty, we see that our aid rapidly draws off. Right. So we know that this surge in economic assistance is occurring in the context of a civil war in El Salvador. The question is, what effect did it have on the levels of political violence during that war? Um, I find uh, in my chapter on El Salvador that our foreign assistance included again, this highly fungible food aid, right? So we know food aid can be monetized, it can be sold, but it also included this category of foreign assistance called economic support funds. And essentially economic support funds, which we continue to provide to countries around the world are essentially cash transfers from the US government to the recipient government and can be spent freely again within the context of that country's domestic budget. Uh, In addition, El Salvador, like in Indonesia, was taking this US food aid and selling it on commercial markets as a way to monetize foreign assistance. And again, directly support the government's budget. What is particularly interesting about El Salvador is that there were also several scandals that were uncovered um, during congressional investigations. So uh, many of you have heard of the Iran Contra scandal. Well, the Contras were also involved um, in monetizing US military assistance to El Salvador. So for instance, El Salvador received billions millions of dollars worth of US funded jet fuel for its air force. But instead of using that jet fuel uh, in their planes to fly sorties during the Civil War, they sold that jet fuel both to the Contras for cash, but also back to the U.S. military, which needed to refuel its own planes. So essentially, we provided military assistance to El Salvador in this very tangible form of jet fuel, which El Salvador then sold back to the U.S. Department of Defense. So these dynamics vary across countries, um, but they are very consistent and persistent over time. There are other ways that U.S. assistance play an important role in shaping political violence abroad. And so in grappling with this finding that U.S. military assistance actually decreases some forms of political violence, right? I look to arguments that suggest that U.S. military assistance largely buys things um, that are hard to use for repression. Right. Um, But it also buys professionalism and training uh, and exposure to U.S. military norms um, that arguably decrease the likelihood of political violence and civilian uh, harm. Right. So one argument is that developing countries actually have higher defense burdens. They live in more threatening environments. They have neighbors with whom they engage in conflict. And so any military assistance that is provided is going to be used for building up external defense. Another, argument by my colleague at National Defense University is that actually there there are really specific programs that are paid for through US military assistance that are likely to reduce human rights abuses. And so these are really kind of officer training programs that focus on international humanitarian law, the laws of war, et cetera. We also see that um, Military capacity that is developed by U.S. foreign assistance can be transferred across contexts, And so it may be the case that when a military um, increases its capacity, right, counterinsurgency capacity, for instance, through U.S. foreign assistance, we might not see that effect immediately. Um, And so uh, Christopher Coyne and Abigail Hall talk about the human capital effect of training and how this can kind of manifest itself in unexpected ways. And so I think there's a little bit of that going on as well. And South Korea helps us understand this a little bit. So again, in South Korea, um, post-war, we have kind of transitional governments and uh, various UN supported governments in South Korea. We obviously have the American occupation as well. Um, And then in the the early 1960s, right, we again see the establishment of a military dictatorship, a general comes to power. But throughout that period, we actually see a massive decline in US foreign assistance in terms of economic aid um, and kind of fluctuations in the level of military assistance. So South Korea is a very interesting case because it's one of a few cases where military aid actually exceeds economic aid. Um, And throughout this period, South Korea undergoes rapid industrialization um, and that's the justification for the decrease in economic assistance that we see. In South Korea, state violence absolutely occurred. It occurred in the 1960s, it occurred in the 1980s. Throughout the 70s and 80s, we had um, the political repression of um, a a broad range of movements, including kind of Christian movements, um, communist movements, and, and any kind of political opposition. But it was really constrained by several key factors. And so first was the unique position um, of the South Korean military where it had US command and control during this period because of the uh, Korean War and the partition of the Korean Peninsula. South Korea also has universal conscription, which means that unlike some of these other cases I examine, uh, it draws on recruits from all parts of the country, all walks of life. And so, There's an argument that that can be made that in these contexts of universal conscription, the the barriers to using political violence are higher because everyone uh, is represented in the military, but also because those individuals are are very closely connected to their communities and in many instances serving in their home communities as well and don't want to use violence against uh, their compatriots. State violence was also uh, constrained by the nature of South Korean opposition, right? So there was no armed rebellion in South Korea. There were no militant groups. Um, For the most part, there were student activists and um, peaceful activism and peaceful opposition. So while it posed a threat to the military regime, we didn't see kind of the outbreak of militarized violence that we do in some of my other cases. I also argue that the threat posed by North Korea, again, is a factor influencing um, the dedication of military resources toward uh, confronting an external threat, right? So there are lots of things going on in South Korea that are very unique to the South Korean context, but others that aren't, right? So I think that there are arguments to be made about universal conscription, about high external threats that can help constrain this coercive effect of foreign assistance that I identify. Great. And so I do want to juxtapose the story in South Korea, though, to the story in Indonesia, where the long-term effects of U.S. military assistance are very unclear. So we know that foreign assistance contributed directly to the capability of the Indonesian armed forces. We provided them with attack helicopters, with naval vessels that were used um, in important conflicts that expanded Indonesian control in places like West Papua and East Timor. Um, But we also know that all of the training and professionalization that we did with the Indonesian military, which continued into the 2010s before it was restricted by Congress, really created a highly trained counterinsurgency force that was then used in internal pacification operations that um, had widespread human rights abuses. So I think that there's an interesting dynamic going on with US military assistance that um, I plan on exploring further. But what I think the main takeaways are is that it's really important to know kind of based on my research and the work of others that The negative effects, and in particular, this coercive effect of US foreign assistance is a structural condition of US foreign aid policy. It happens regardless of our intentions, um, and it's not just a cold war phenomenon. So many people think, oh, yes, during the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union were engaged with this battle and we supported some dictators and they did bad things. But that's all behind us. I find the coercive effect of foreign aid to be persistent um, and occurring even in the contemporary period. Right. So if we analyze just post Cold War period, this is still going on. Uh, And I look at cases like Afghanistan, like South Sudan, to illustrate how this is an ongoing concern uh, for US foreign aid policy. I also point out that US military assistance and economic assistance have very differential impacts. And so just as we can't throw them in the same bucket and talk about US foreign assistance and human rights in this very general sense, we have to look at these different pathways for military assistance and economic assistance. But I think it's also very important to acknowledge that um, military assistance has a bad rap, um, and that is not necessarily borne out in the evidence, and that we need to do more research on the actual human rights impacts of military assistance over the long term to understand those dynamics better. In this context, though, where we're aware of the coercive effects of foreign aid. I argue that continuing economic assistance to repressive governments may be more harmful in the long term than cutting off aid. So we often hear, um, you know, the United States can't restrict foreign assistance to Egypt. Egypt is such an important country. We need Egypt's military to be strong, um, but we have to be very aware, as informed citizens, as taxpayers, um, that that continued relationship, those continued uh, transfers of economic assistance have very real life political consequences. And that continuing some of these policies um, are very harmful. And I think we're seeing that on the ground right now in Myanmar where the United States embraced a political opening in Myanmar that saw a government come to power that was still backed by the military. I mean, for 10 years, we pumped a lot of resources in the hopes that Myanmar would open up and democratize and there'd be this political change. Uh, And as we've seen since February, all we succeeded in doing was kind of uh, entrenching the military. Um, and raising the expectations of the people in Myanmar, but without any ability to deliver that freedom um, and those rights on their behalf. And so I think that's an important context uh, for my my work and I look forward to your questions, thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Just a question that came to my mind, and by the way, folks, you can drop your questions in the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen and we'll be uh, curating them. But uh, in regard to this, uh, this relationship, are there ways where we could maybe offset it, even if uh, we still decide, you know, to provide this type of aid? We say, all right, you know, maybe we'll provide like some civil society aid or, or something along those lines. Uh, you know, are, th- are there ways to mitigate the damage or is it just, hey, like there's an on-off switch and you're going to get these good things and these bad things uh, at the same time whenever you're providing economic aid?
2: That's a really excellent question. And I think I'll just keep running with my my Burma-Myanmar example now because it's it's very much in the moment. So in response to the February 1 coup in Burma-Myanmar, the U.S. government said, okay, immediately we're pausing all aid. And in fact, we're going to take, I believe it was 42 million, but someone can, can Google that right now and check for me. We're going to take tens of million dollars in aid that we had We're gonna pause it and we're gonna redirect it toward civil society, right? Which absolutely sounds like a fantastic thing to do. The problem is that this reactivity, right, doesn't account for the 10 previous years of US foreign assistance to the government and the military in Myanmar. Um, And it also doesn't acknowledge the reality that we just can't give $42 million to civil society in Burma very easily, right? We have government contracting processes. We have to put out um, calls for proposals. We have to review proposals. We have to ensure those individuals comply with all of our rules and regulations, which are extremely difficult to navigate. Um, And so I think many argue that that we do support civil society and we do, and we support organizations that train journalists and we support organizations that um, allow these groups to organize and become active. But that assistance um, is very different in quantity and in nature than the assistance that we provide to governments. Um, And it's relatively new historically that we bypass the government in this way, Um, but it can also have really important consequences if we think like, of states like South Sudan or Haiti, right? Where concerns about government corruption lead um, donors to bypass the state. And essentially we get republics of NGOs where the state has very little authority and very little reach. And so I think there are potential consequences um, to bypassing the state and that it's better to use our leverage over the state um, to try and change some of the negative behaviors we see.
1: Um, I'm going to take the next question from the Q&A. Adam Greco asked, do you think that at least a portion of foreign aid should instead go to charities aimed at assisting the needy of target countries?
2: So the United States has a long history of uh, private charitable giving right, and and civic action. And so we know many churches, many civic organizations uh, go out and do wonderful charitable works abroad. And I think that there is an increasing interest in private philanthropy and support for that sort of direct action work. And so, um, for instance, a lot of the universities that I've taught at have kind of alt spring breaks where individuals go out um, and do this sort of, of charitable work. I think it's very important that that work is detached from state funding and uh, government action, right? Because part of why that work is so effective is that it doesn't come with the government ties or expectations or political weight that's associated with official US government funded programs, right? Um, And so, When we look at kind of the profile of foreign assistance, generally, right, we have things like foreign direct investment, um, so corporate investment, we have kind of private investment, charitable works, um, and then really the state to state official foreign assistance. We also have multilateral organizations, right, such as the UN, the World Bank, and others who provide um, different types of loans, charitable loans, and direct programming as well. And so I think we have a really diverse ecosystem in terms of foreign assistance and development work, and that private charitable giving is an important part of that um, that should remain separate.
0: So I'm curious, you mentioned the case of Afghanistan, you know, that's in the headlines a lot lately the U.S. relationship with Afghanistan, whether we should have troops there. Uh, there's a, a general presumption that regardless of whether we have a lot of troops they were going to continue providing a significant amount of aid. Uh, and there's been a lot of criticism from a lot of different directions of the uh, the types and uh, results uh, that we've gotten for the aid provided to Afghanistan from the standpoint of corruption, effectiveness, uh, you know, the buildup of these huge uh, poppy palaces in, in Kabul, uh, the idea that you know maybe the Afghan economy is so dependent on external assistance that uh, you know, the, the cutting that off could essentially destroy the society. I'm curious if you have any further thoughts on the particular case of Afghanistan.
2: Yes, yeah, so I think one of the most striking things about Afghanistan is that foreign assistance to the country is absolutely not new. U.S. foreign assistance to country is absolutely not new. Um, what is new is the expectation that we can remake a society in our own image with several billion dollars a year. Right. So one really striking thing, um, the USAID inspector or the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan, uh, did a study of schools and how U.S. funded schools were being utilized in the country. Um, they went to I believe fifteen schools in one in one province, uh, and in their kind of audit of these schools, they found one school half of the students were missing, another school half of the teachers were missing, and in a third school. There was no one at all, right? And so I think it speaks to, again, the difference between donor intentions and outcomes, right? No one is going to contest the fact that building schools, creating opportunities for young people in Afghanistan is a noble intention. The question is, you know, was the construction of these schools in these particular locations, a way to achieve that end, right? And we can think of all sorts of reasons, right? We can think about the importance of kind of gender segregation in some cultures that makes mixed schools different, difficult. We can think of the importance of agricultural cycles. We can think about the the sheer Um, difficulty and danger of traveling to school in some of these communities, right? We can think about what it means to have a school in Taliban controlled territory and who would be allowed to teach in that school right? Um, And who would feel safe teaching in that school, given that the Taliban have repeatedly attacked educational institutions, right? And so I think that oftentimes U.S. foreign assistance policy in particular is driven by a lot of really wonderful intentions without much thought paid to the long-term consequences of what we're trying to achieve. Um, I think in general, it is... There, there's a kind of like stick with itness that um, I love about uh, America in general, but I think that it kind of highlights the futility of what our project is in Afghanistan if we think about how many times the Kabul Ring Road has been blown up and how many times Japan and the United States have paid for it to be repaved. Um, and so there is. Uh, I think there's a fine line between uh good intentions and an inability to accept reality. Um and in Afghanistan we're 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 teetering on either side of that line.
1: Great. Um the next question comes from Scarlett. Um In what ways is it easier for the US to control where military aid is directed as opposed to economic aid? And is it easier?
2: That's great. So military assistance is a really diverse um, category of US foreign assistance. So um, it includes professional education for military officers. So regularly we bring over um, thousands of military officers from other countries to be trained at U.S. staff colleges. We send um, U.S. Uh, service members abroad to conduct trainings. So right now the U.S. Marines are training uh, the Mozambican Marines to help in their counter effort in Cabo Delgado. Um, It also includes or has historically included, right? um, Discounted US military hardware. So when something becomes obsolete from a US military perspective, we try and give it to another country. Um, We try and offer discounted rates on the purchases of US military hardware, right? So historically those were called military assistance program grants um, and it has evolved into what was known as foreign military financing. So there's a there's a kind of broad array of things that count as U.S. military assistance in terms of restrictions on U.S. military assistance. um, There is this kind of pool of legislation known as the Leahy laws, which restricts U.S. military assistance to specific military units that have been identified as human rights abusers. Um, so for instance, this uh, occurred in Indonesia with its elite counterinsurgency unit known as Kupasus, um, which essentially does what commandos do. Um, and so Kopassus was put on this kind of restricted list. Um, but military assistance can still be provided to other units of the Indonesian military. Right. Um, it's also unclear how a unit kind of gets off this US naughty list, right? Whether it's about the unit itself, um, whether it's about accountability for individuals who may have committed war crimes, whether the kind of last member of the unit um, who was there historically when the, the, when the war crimes were committed has left the unit. Um, so I think a lot of military personnel have, themselves have raised concerns with those restrictions. Um, there are also more general restrictions on US military assistance. So for instance, we are prohibited uh, by law from providing US military assistance to governments that use child soldiers. So under international law, um, anyone under the age of 18 uh, cannot be recruited into a military force. However, um, some countries routinely ignore that fact and, and recruit under 18s. However, there is something called a presidential waiver that can get you around this. So for instance, the Obama administration issued a presidential waiver of this child soldiering restriction so that we could provide military assistance to South Sudan. Um, so even though we have kind of these human rights restrictions that are supposed to um, protect how US military resources are being used and ensure that they are not being used for human rights abuses, um, there are many workarounds that exist currently.
0: Just to uh, to dig in a uh, a bit more, um, you know, on the, just the, the genesis of this, I think is, is very interesting. What, what inspired you to start looking at this relationship? Cause the findings just seem so counterintuitive.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And actually I do discuss this, uh, in the book and it's, it's the first part of the, um, the audio book as well. And I think that I've always, wondered, you know, what it would be like in a world where we didn't have the U.S. propping up military dictatorships. So my mom is originally from the Philippines uh, and in the early 1970s, a democratically elected president um, instituted martial law and what followed was a a 10 year period of dictatorship. And my mom actually fled the Philippines during that period of dictatorship because she was a young college student like all of you um, and was protesting against martial law um, and was arrested. And my grandparents saw her on television And thought, you know, maybe it's not such a good idea to stay. Um, I look at that history of the Philippines, right, which had democracy restored after a massive um, uprising, right, the People Power Movement. Um, But during the course of that dictatorship, thousands of people disappeared. And when there was an opportunity, Uh, Very recently, to uh, bring to light human rights abuses that occurred during the Marcos era, more than 70,000 human rights violations were alleged by individuals who had family members abused or disappeared uh, during that time. So that's always really motivated me because from the US perspective, right? Marcos was our guy in Southeast Asia. He was anti-communist. He was fighting a communist insurgency. He was pro-American. And so I always wondered like, what, what is the counterfactual here, right? What if individuals like that, dictatorships like that didn't have the backing Uh, from the United States? Would we have seen the same dynamics? And so that led me to really investigate how this support was being used, not only in the Philippines during that era, but around the world. Um, And I think what continues to motivate my research is the reality that not very much has changed since then. Uh, We continue to support dictatorships around the world with our US foreign assistance. And although we really try and center human rights and human rights discourses in our speeches and our press releases, um, our actual concern for for those freedoms in practice is less clear.
1: Um, Next question is from John. He said, can you elaborate on what you feel are the consequences of bypassing the state when it comes to foreign aid?
2: Absolutely. So there's this idea that if we just give US foreign aid dollars, right, or other forms of support to NGOs and other civic organizations in recipient countries, right, then the state can't capture those resources. Um, and they'll be used more efficiently and more effectively and respond to communities needs. Except when we look to uh, cases where that has occurred, and so Haiti immediately after um, the earthquake is one example, uh, parts of Afghanistan are another example, um, South Sudan, right? We actually see that the state doesn't develop uh, an effective capacity to govern. So if Médecins Sans Frontières is providing excellent rural health care, the state has no incentive to develop its own rural healthcare clinics, right? Um, At the same time, we also know that NGOs are subject to the same sorts of pressures, right? That lead to the diversion of foreign assistance. So for instance, um, our humanitarian assistance in places like Syria and Somalia um, have regularly been diverted towards terrorist organizations. Right, who have been able to put pressure on those NGOs and civil society groups right, to, to hand over aid. Um, and civil society groups are also likely to be captured by criminal and other networks. And so this absolutely isn't always the case, Um, but it does exist. And so when we're talking about, for instance, support for civil society in a place like Venezuela, where we know there are active cartels um, and drug trafficking networks and close ties to Colombia, we have to ask ourselves like, what civil society are we interested in supporting? Right? Because those are also elements of civil society. Um, And we have to guard good civil society from bad civil society, but can we really do that effectively? I think some of the best, you know, public health outcomes we've had with US foreign assistance have been when we're really responding to community needs. So if we think about kind of anti-malarial bed net policies or um, the PEPFAR program, which provides um, HIV AIDS counseling and antiretroviral drugs throughout the developing world, those have been really successful programs, right? There are also things that, Militant groups don't want, right? Um, it's very different when we're talking about food aid. It's very different when we're talking about other resources that can either help a group survive or can be monetized. Um, so, so it's complicated. But I think that it's important to ask these types of questions because the only way we can kind of force our government to think about these issues. Um, as more complex, and, and think in terms of ecosystems where our aid programs are operating, uh, is to raise them and to raise these kind of uncomfortable truths.
0: Got another question? Uh, flipping uh, flipping over toward military aid. You know, we've talked about the long term uh, economic uh, aid effects. What about the relationship between the efficacy and the duration of military assistance?
2: Yeah, that's really important. I think that um, in foreign assistance in general, right, the most likely predictor of whether a country is going to receive foreign assistance is whether it received foreign assistance in the previous year. Every now and then you get a massive historical shift in the kind of distribution of US foreign assistance. So the war in Afghanistan is a perfect example, right? The United States gave very, very low levels of aid to Afghanistan until we invaded the country and then aid skyrocketed, right? Um, Peace accords are another example. So the Oslo peace process um, really shifted patterns of US foreign assistance distribution in the Middle East. By and large though, right, once these programs get going, they remain very stable over time. So if we look at military assistance to Egypt or Israel or even uh, Pakistan since, uh, since the war in Afghanistan began, there aren't really significant fluctuations there. And so when it comes to military assistance, it's more of a question of have and have nots, right? Which countries get these large military assistance packages and which don't. Um, And so when we look at military assistance, it's kind of a consistent um, pool of countries. I think that that's changing in response to um, growing concern over Islamist movements and different kind of iterations of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Uh, overseas. And so um, we're seeing increasingly uh, U.S. development assistance being driven by counterterrorism goals. And so while military assistance might remain limited in terms of kind of technical training, counterinsurgency training for various militaries in places like um, Mozambique or Burkina Faso, Niger, Chad, we're seeing kind of massive increases in economic assistance to those same countries um, being driven towards countering violent extremism and counterterrorism. So I think it's another instance in the contemporary period where we're giving a lot of economic assistance that is being justified according to a military rationale or which has kind of security oriented goals as its objective. Um, Very similar to what was happening during the Cold War, but now with a different uh, quote unquote enemy in mind.
1: Uh, The next question is um, you discussed how other variables such as civil war can be accounted for in explaining when military aid is used and when economic aid is used and how does U.S. interests and leverage play a role in that?
2: Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I think what's important to note in the context of civil wars, right? Is that the United States is not a neutral participant, right? In, in every civil conflict, the United States has a group that it favors. Right. And so we have to think about how foreign assistance is provided uh, in civil war contexts with that in mind. So, in the case of El Salvador, it heavily favored uh, the Salvadoran military junta um, and its right wing paramilitaries, right, against this organized communist threat um, to the status quo in El Salvador. So, the civil war there kind of drove um, both patterns of military and economic assistance to El Salvador. And kind of very similar to what I just discussed um, in the contemporary situation in in the Sahel, uh, subsequent congressional investigations decided uh, that essentially three quarters of the economic assistance that was given in El Salvador should have been reclassified as military assistance because it had military objectives in mind. And so one really great example of this is um, infrastructure projects, right? So part of the FMLM strategy in El Salvador was to kind of wage a war of economic sabotage. So they blew up bridges, they blew up, power transfer centers, right? So they would knock out electricity to a region. They would blow up roads to prevent um, farmers from being able to take their produce to market. So it would affect the kind of economic situation of the market, mar- sorry, the economic situation of the farmers, right, and agricultural markets in the country more generally. Um, so a lot of the economic assistance that we were providing was to deal with some of these episodes of economic sabotage, to rebuild the bridges, to fix the power stations, to help the farmers get their produce to market. But all of those activities were taking place in the context of this war and in the context of this power struggle between the Salvadoran military junta and the FMLN. And so again, it's a question of, you know, we differentiate between economic and military assistance in terms of whether it's being given by USAID and the State Department, whether it's coming from DOD um, or whether it's coming from the US uh, Department of Agriculture and the provision of food aid. But I think what a more important distinction is, particularly in these sorts of civil war contexts is, what is the aid being used for? What is it intended to do, right? So it's very different um, if you use a road for security objectives, and that's why you need that road to be clear and operational at all times, right? It's very different to, uh, continuously rebuild and maintain that road than it is to pave a dirt road in some rural area that um, is not a kind of high priority security item, and so once we start looking at those specific objectives of of U.S. foreign aid policy, I think we get a much better understanding of how much of our economic assistance is driven by security objectives.
0: Just to to ask one final question here, you've put out like three books in the last couple of years. And I'm curious, you know, if you have any productivity secrets or anything along those lines, because, you know, we've, we've got a lot of college students who are always having to do writing and kind of, uh, I know I, I, I wrote a lot of stuff at like, you know, 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. the night before. I'm curious, you know, how, how are you able to have such a high level of uh, scholarly production?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, one, I work, uh, I work a lot in collaboration. And so I'm really blessed to have kind of wonderful uh, colleagues to collaborate with um, and throw thoughts back and forth on. Um, You have to write fast, and sometimes you make mistakes, and it's messy, and you go back and you fix it and make it beautiful. Um, But sometimes you just make it okay, and that's that's okay too. Um, But I also think you know we waste an awful lot of time on a lot of ridiculous. things. Um, and I say that having like repeatedly watched Russia's Eurovision contributors music video today. Um, so there's actually lots of free time in our lives. We just don't take those five minutes here and 10 minutes there and consolidate them. Um, and so what I've tried to really do is kind of compress all of that phone checking screen staring time into, into kind of more discreet chunks, um, but I agree with the, you know, writing late at night, I have two small kids. Um, I'm very productive between 8.30 and 10, but sometimes I'm not and I just watch a movie. So I think the key is like, don't be hard on yourself, learn to write fast and know that that old adage that, you know, perfection is the enemy of good is, is definitely, definitely true.
0: Absolutely. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Uh, Jessica trisco darden is our guest tonight. And thank you to Gabriella Baghdadi and the Johns Hopkins chapter as well. We've got our upcoming events just dropped in the chat. Three really good ones coming up, two next week, one the week after. Uh, Really looking forward to seeing everybody again. But thank you and have a great evening.
2: Thank you so much for this opportunity.